But if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 10, the gospel of Luke and chapter 10. And then once you get to chapter 10, jump down to verse 17, and we are going to read verses 17 through 24 in our time together uh, this morning. We'll examine this passage um, as we continue our study through the gospel of Luke. Last week, we looked, jumped back into Luke, and we looked at verses 1 through uh, 16, and this in some sense is an ending to that scene that we looked at last week. Um, it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Uh, Luke at chapter 10, starting at verse 17. The Holy Spirit says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced, Jesus did, in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Amen. It's God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Let me begin by asking you a question. When was the last time you rejoiced? When was the last time you rejoiced? And I mean really rejoiced. Was there something that made you rejoice this weekend, perhaps? Something happened in the past week or, or past month or past year that made you rejoice and sing and clap and shout. There are many things, yes, in life that make us rejoice, aren't there? And they vary in degrees, but we find ourselves rejoicing in plenty of things that our child or grandchildren accomplishing something, whether it be something like taking their first step or graduating from college. We rejoice when we get or accomplish something we've worked towards. We rejoice when a close friend or family member rejoices. We rejoice with them. We rejoice when we get some relief of an ailment or the tests come back negative. We even rejoice, as perhaps you did yesterday, at the victory of our favorite sports ball team. And on and on we could go, yes? Point is, we are people who rejoice because we were hardwired for joy. We're created by God to experience joy and to thus express that joy through rejoicing. Through rejoicing, through our emotions, through our words and our actions, and what we rejoice in, what we find joy in, reveals what we value. Someone who spent a lot of time thinking about this was C.S. Lewis, who made sure the topic of joy permeated all of his writings. For Lewis, joy was something... He knew all people longed for, that all humans experience a sort of wanting for joy. This wanting is what drove him mad as an atheist because he went down so many false roads and rabbit trails seeking something to give him true joy. And this, ironically, his pursuit of joy led him to 
despair. But then his search for joy led him to God because, as he concluded in mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. For Lewis, he knew there were many things that could bring us joy in this life. Something as simple as a good book, a smell, a particular strain of good music. But what he concluded was that no joy on earth could bring us true joy because all joy was pointing to something else, to something beyond. Joe Rigney explains it like this. He said, before he became a Christian, Lewis's experience of joy was a desire for he knew not what. He simply wanted to find the place where all the joy came from. Once he became a Christian, the quest for joy became far less important because he realized the stabs of joy were merely pointers to something other and outer. They were not the destination, but merely signposts along the way. Now that he knew where the, joy, where the journey led, the signposts lost their allure, even as they continued to encourage him on the narrow road. See, Lewis knew the joys in life were indeed for us to enjoy, but he knew they would never be enough to satisfy our longings. He said we must realize where the joys come from. Then labor with God's help to adore Him, to run our minds back up the sunbeam to the sun. If God gave us joy, how much, must, how much joy must be found in having Him, the giver of all joy? Only then can fullness of joy be found by knowing and enjoying Him. The text we are considering this morning in our continuation of our study of this rich gospel is utterly, did you notice, soaked in joy. From start to finish, the tone of the passage is joy that leads to rejoicing, both in the disciples and in Jesus. And it is here that we see where true and lasting joy is found. We see the joy that Lewis talked about that was outer and other, that is beyond this world. And it is joy that Jesus has that he tells us to share with him. And there at last, we find the only joy that is full and fixed, the joy that all other joys are pointing to. So in our time together, let's consider three points, all having to do with rejoicing, okay? Let's start with number one. Number one, rejoice in service to the kingdom. Point number one, rejoice in service to the kingdom. If you recall last week, from 10, 1 through 16, we saw Jesus, he sent out the 72 of his followers to go before him and to pray to the Lord of the harvest, go into the harvest, heal and preach the message that the kingdom of God was at hand. We saw that these ordinary folks were to go and depend on God for provisions and to tell the people that a new age has dawned, that the long-awaited kingdom of God is broken into time and space and that they were being invited into that kingdom. Now we see in verse 17 that the 72 have returned and they're giving the report to Jesus of what they saw and did. Says Luke, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Clearly, they're pumped up. Yes, and, and you can understand why, can't you? I mean, consider again what Jesus told them when he sent them out. He said some things that might not inspire confidence, right? In verses 1 through 16, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but what? Workers are few. He said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. He said, they should, don't take anything with you, but depend on the hospitality of people. He said, the, that people will reject you. 
<coughs> and they should thus wipe the dust off their feet and warn them of the inbreaking of the kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, he told them there was going to be discouragement, lack of workers. It would be dangerous, your sheep among wolves. And that they were to go with a deficit, take nothing with you. That doesn't seem encouraging, does it? I mean, if you, if you were going to a place that on a mission trip or something like that, that was full of people who hated you, automatic, already hated you, that you, you can't take anything with you, that they'll probably, you're going to go, but they'll probably reject you. How encouraged, encouraged would you be? Probably not much, but that's how Jesus sent his disciples out. And what was the result? James Edwards says, the stage, the stage seems to have been set for the poorly equipped and underprepared disciples to return limping in defeat. How remarkable then, the report of Luke that the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Obedience to the commands and commission of Jesus has not left the disciples spent, cynical, or burned out. Rather, their experience of God's providence and power results in joy. Again, Luke doesn't tell us the details, right? He doesn't tell us how many people responded favorably to the message, does he? He didn't tell us how many people were healed. He didn't tell us how many demons were cast out or any such things. He didn't even tell us how, how many people welcomed them in their houses or how many people rejected them. He simply tells us that this group of ragamuffins went out in obedience to the Lord and they were in an obvious deficit, but that they returned what? Rejoicing at what the Lord had done through their risking and through their going and through their proclaiming. This is the result of faithfulness and obedience done Notice in Jesus' name. Regardless of what the actual response is, you see, the result is joy because it's done for Jesus in obedience to his word, trusting in his promise and power and provision. Joy in mission comes from no other measurement than faithfulness. So, so, so much of what we do as people, you'll agree with me, is driven by how we feel. Yes? Feelings are one of the great gods of our modern age, whether we want to admit it or not. If you don't feel good about something, we'll probably just not do it, right? Even things that might be risky, we at least want to feel like there will be some sort of payoff right? that will be worth the risk. want to know what the risk versus reward ratio is before we undertake most anything. This is one of the reasons we don't share the gospel. It's too risky. Not that we live in a place where our evangelism will result in government like arresting us or killing us, but in that we might be rejected. Or that the conversation might be uncomfortable. Or we may lose a relationship because of our insistence on gospel proclamation. We don't want to go out with a deficit like the disciples did here because we need to make sure our backup plan has a backup plan before we do anything. We don't risk and trust in the Lord's provision in life or church or evangelism because we need assurance of immediate, visible payoff. Otherwise, why do it? If we can't be assured that our labors and the harvest won't show up immediately, how can we have joy and unsafe obedience? Well, that's the answer, right? Joy comes in simply obeying the Lord of doing ministry in his name. Our joy is in the honor of ministering in the name of the King of glory, who is, you'll remember, the Lord of the harvest, and thus will handle the results. Regardless, 
if we are going to a dangerous and discouraging place with a deficit, we can have joy like the 72 did here because of the one whose name we go in. The other day, I saw it announced that a new Baptist association made up of 128 Burmese churches was being constituted. And they were going to meet in conjunction with the SBC annual meeting next June. Now, you might look at that and think, that's pretty cool, and then move on, right? It's cool that their association is starting, but associations get started all the time, don't they? But the reason that the Burmese people have the gospel today, do you know why? The reason Burmese Christians number today in the millions, the reason there are expanding associations of Burmese churches is because of the faithfulness over 100 years ago of one man, Adoniram Judson. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Adoniram Judson was convinced that God wanted him to take the gospel to the unreached peoples in Asia. If you Adam purposely previously heard the name of Jesus, he was in serious deficit. He had never been there. <laughs> he didn't know anybody. He didn't speak the language. And on top of that, everyone in his life said he was crazy. They tried to dissuade him from going. They said, just stay in America. Get a respectable job. Just live a quiet and safe life. Going to a foreign land is madness, is what they told him. Judson, however, was, sh- uh, was sure God was calling him to do this. So at the age of 25, he married and his wife of seven days went to India. But they were denied entrance. So they went to Burma, a place they didn't intend on going. But they saw an opportunity to reach people with the gospel, so they went. Over the course of his time in Burma, he would lose his wife, his second wife. He would lose two children. He would be imprisoned and mistreated, and it took seven years before he saw his first convert. In fact, in the first 12 years in Burma, he saw only 18 converts in 12 years. But by the end of his life, 8,000 people confessed faith in Christ, and 100 churches were planted, and the Burmese Bible that he translated is still in use today. And Burmese churches are forming united associations to reach the world with the gospel. Now what if Judson's joy was focused solely on immediate results? What if after not having more than 18 converts over the course of 12 years, he just quit? It's not worth it. What if his joy didn't rest in the Lord of the harvest, but instead on what he could see and do under his own power? What if he just never went at all because it was too risky and he was in a deficit? What if after denied entry in India, he just came back to America instead of going to Burma? Well, then there would be millions of people who would have lived and died without ever hearing the gospel. Friend, we must see that the joy of the mission, the joy of evangelism, the joy of selfless service in the church is found primarily in obedience to the sending Christ, regardless of what circumstances might say. And the beauty about being in a deficit, you know there's beauty about being in a deficit? You know there's beauty about needing to risk? Is that it forces us to depend on Jesus and find our joy in him. Otherwise, we might be excited in the wrong things, namely what we got going on, what we're doing, what we're accomplishing by our own might. We want to be safe, and we want to be strong, we want to be in control, we want to be equipped, and we want to be secure. But don't you see that this can cause us to rely on ourselves? Don't you see that this this can make us allergic to the risky life of discipleship that Jesus clearly calls us to? Don't you See that thus we won't find mission and service and honor to, or joy, but a burden to avoid. 
It's an honor, yes, to serve in the kingdom of Christ, yes. And therefore, it should be a joy. What, what other mission, tell me, what other mission is there that one can rejoice in regardless of circumstances? Well, what else can you give yourself away to that will affect people's eternity? What else can you pursue that will be for a kingdom that has no end? Well, perhaps we forget or don't realize the scope and effect of our service to the kingdom. Do you realize the consequences and influence of kingdom service? Let's let's consider our second point. This will put it in some perspective, okay? Point number two. Rejoice in Satan's defeat. Point number two. Rejoice in Satan's defeat. So the 72 come to Jesus. They're clearly full of joy. What does Jesus say? He says, I saw, isn't this strange when we read this? Didn't you think this was an odd response? The 72 come back, even demons, <laughs> right? They tell Jesus, we had a great time. Even demons were subject in your name. And what's the first thing that Jesus says? I saw Satan fall like lightning. What does that mean? Well, when did Jesus see this? What does he say right after? The clue is there, isn't there? He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. See, Jesus connects. Don't miss this, okay? Jesus connects Satan's progressive defeat with the proclamation of the kingdom that the 72 just did. While the 72 were out there proclaiming that the kingdom has broken into time and space, and while they were healing the sick, when they were casting out Jesus, casting out demons in the name of Christ, Jesus saw, while they're out there doing this, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. David Garland puts it like this, Jesus projects the limited defeat of demons onto the broader screen of the cosmic conflict between God and the forces of evil. What is happening is not simply the expulsion of random demons that they might come across in their travels, but the beginning of the complete overthrow of Satan's rule. Notice again what the disciples say to Jesus in verse 17. They say, even the demons were subject to us in your name. You know what's interesting about this is the fact that when Jesus commissioned them in verses 12 through, 2 through 12, he never told them they'd be able to cast out demons, did he? He never made that promise. He never commanded them to do that. He told them to heal and proclaim. And so they're excited that Jesus did above and beyond, right? above and beyond, even what he said he was going to do in their commissioning. The power in the message was even greater, don't you see, than the 72 were aware of. Point is, the kingdom breaking in and the message spreading to those in darkness and people responding positively to the message and thus being put in the kingdom of God all defeat Satan more and more. Each one is a step towards his downfall. All of it spells an end to his kingdom. Leon Morris says this, to the casual observer, all that happened was that a few homeless preachers had spoken in a few small town and healed a few sick folk. But in that gospel triumph, Satan had suffered a notable defeat. Do you realize that more and more, Satan's kingdom is falling and being defeated? Do you realize that? Each step in redemption history is another step towards devil's defeat. With Jesus' incarnation, Satan's kingdom's doom was signaled. With every proclamation that the kingdom is at hand, Satan's kingdom loses ground. With Jesus' death on the cross, the death knell of Satan resounded. With Jesus' resurrection, even Satan's greatest weapon, death, was defeated. 
And friend, every time, I need you to get this, okay? Let's put this in perspective. Every time you meet needs in Jesus' name, every time you put others before yourself for the sake of the kingdom, every time you proclaim the gospel to those in present darkness, you are striking a blow to the kingdom of darkness. Even with, even with your simply getting up and getting here this morning, you thumbed your nose at the prince of darkness. You said, I belong to another kingdom with a superior king. And I intend to his praises and shout my allegiance. Do you know that? Do you realize the cosmic effect of your mere obedience to Christ? When Jesus says you have power to tread on serpents and scorpions, he is saying that under his authority, in obedience to his commands, to go and preach and heal, that you are imitating him in some sense. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when in the midst of the fall, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the head of the serpent. Jesus coming in flesh was a giant step towards Genesis 3.15 being fulfilled. And when you obey Jesus and push back the darkness, you're doing like Jesus does and will do. You are treading on the serpent's head. So as you take the kingdom of those of present darkness, you're crushing serpents and scorpions. You are striking another blow to Satan and his minions. Said one commentator, the kingdom of God has been on the march, and when it moves, the forces of hell are shaken to the core. Demonic thrones are overturned. The light of the world dispels the darkness of sin and evil, and Satan and his minions lose the authority they have to hold the church of Jesus Christ in bondage. Jesus makes a promise that when you do this, did you notice? you will be protected. Didn't he say that? This spiritual protection. He is saying that no demon, nor even Satan himself, can touch you. They have no claim over you if you are in Christ. Are you aware of that? Did you know that? You don't need to fear evil or the demonic or even Satan himself. Jesus says so here. They can't touch you. You're walking around with an invisible sign that says to Satan in hell, off limits property of the true king. It's why Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? And who will bring a charge against God's elect? And who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he says, we're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through him who loved us. And what? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is there to fear? What's there to fear? Is this not a source of unending joy to know that the kingdom of darkness is on borrowed time? As we look at the world, full of evil and injustice, and pain and misery, and broken relationships and sorrow, and burdens and sin and death. We should indeed weep with those who weep. We should lament sin and evil, but our mourning should turn to rejoice when we remember once more that all the evil we see is on borrowed time. All the darkness we sense is the, really the death rattle of Satan because he's making a last-ditch effort because he knows his doom is sure. The devil knows his kingdom is on borrowed time because Christ is conquered and Christ continues to conquer through the faithfulness 
of those whom he has loved through your faithfulness and brought into the kingdom, who in turn are empowered and brought into his mission to help push back the darkness. So friend, if you belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness has no power over you. You are free and you are a threat, which is why Satan would love nothing more than for you to sit on the sidelines in the war for souls. It's why Satan loves when churches get bogged down and become inwardly focused, reveling in how much they love doing things for themselves. It's why Satan loves Christians who live like the world and never risk and never go and never tell and never serve and never spot and meet needs of people. It's why Satan enjoys watching Christians do nothing for the kingdom but live for themselves and get taken in by the idols of the culture and the world. He loves marginal, cultural, comfortable Christianity that never risks never goes, never serves, and never focuses on others. But when, we, when you revolt against Satan and you do serve, and you do forgive, and you do meet needs, and you do love sacrificially, and you do proclaim the kingdom, and you do selflessly focus on others, well, you may be thinking you're just pursuing ordinary faithfulness, and it doesn't matter much, but what's really happening is you are striking another blow to Satan and his kingdom. Satan knows you can crush his head. He knows he's on his last breath before Jesus comes once and for all and steps on his head, vanquishing him forevermore. And his progressive defeat happens through regular, ordinary obedience to King Jesus and proclaiming his glory wherever you go. You know, tomorrow is the 505th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door at Wittenberg. Well, this is a fitting day. I think if you looked at your weekend worship guide, you'll see that we're going to sing his most famous hymn, Luther's. A mighty fortress is our God. And we'll do that after the sermon. And in that song, Luther wrote this, and I hope you sing this out in, in light of what we've been talking about when we sing this song. He said this in that song, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That's good news, worth remembering often and worth rejoicing over. But there's better news still. Can you believe it? There's something worth rejoicing over even more than that. Point number three. Rejoice at your place in the kingdom. Point number three, rejoice at your place in the kingdom. After Jesus tells 72, he saw Satan fall and that they have power to tread on serpents and scorpions. He tells them not to rejoice in the power they have over the spirits, but to rejoice in that their names are written in heaven, which is another way of saying that they are members of the kingdom of Christ. So true joy, says Jesus, is knowing God. So we rejoice, yes, in Satan's fall. We rejoice in being included in Jesus' mission. We rejoice in serving the king. We rejoice at stomping on serpents and scorpions. We rejoice that we can proclaim the kingdom and see people transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. But, says Jesus, the greatest of all truths you must rejoice in is that God has shown you grace and mercy and has pursued you and rescued you by the blood of his son. Your truest identity of all your truest joy is in the fact that your name is written in heaven. I, I love being your pastor. 
I love seeing you grow through the word. I love that you are here and hearing the word proclaimed every week. And I think it's cool that God could use a jacked up ragamuffin like me to do it. My truest identity is not Vaughn the pastor. Vaughn the pastor of FBC Cordial. It's not in Vaughn the preacher. It's not even in Vaughn the dad or husband. It's that I am a recipient of lavish grace and an heir to the kingdom of Christ because of his deeds and love and mercy and pursuit. You may have all of these other identity markers in your life, but your most valuable and important identity is that you belong to Jesus. That he has you and you have him. But don't forget that for one moment because everything else you do ought to be informed by your truest identity, that of son or daughter of God. Jesus says that all other rejoicing ought to pale in comparison to the rejoicing of knowing that you're in the kingdom. To know that you were once far off. You were once part of the kingdom of darkness. That you're now privileged, that same kingdom, that you are now privileged to help fell, as Luther would say, knowing that you are in relationship with the creator who you were once alienated from. Knowing that you were once an enemy and a rebel, but you're now a son or daughter. Says Jesus, that's worth celebrating. That's worth rejoicing over. I wonder, does that make you rejoice? Does knowing that make you rejoice? I think that's worth rejoicing over, don't you? Let's sweeten the pot a little, okay? Look at verse 21. You see what it says there? Who is that? Can you believe this? In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he's interesting. This is interesting for several reasons. First, you notice the Trinity. You see the Trinity here? Jesus, the Son, rejoiced through the Holy Spirit as he prayed to the Father. There's the Trinity, right? But, but second reason this is interesting is because this is, listen, this is the only place in the Bible where we are explicitly told that Jesus rejoiced. And that word rejoice is emphatic. That means literally exceedingly joyful, something akin to jumping for joy. In fact, it's even a different word than the word rejoice in the previous verse. Luke changed it and used a different word because he wants to stress that Jesus rejoicing is strong and abundant. This, I'm not exaggerating here, is the most exultant description of Jesus in all of Scripture. What's he rejoicing over? the same thing you should rejoice over above all things. Your place in the kingdom. Will you think about that for a moment? The most joyful Jesus is in Scripture is over the fact that you are in the kingdom. You, of all people. You are in the kingdom. That makes Jesus rejoice. Friend, you don't deserve to be in the kingdom. Do you know that? You don't deserve to be in the kingdom. I don't deserve to be in the kingdom. 
The only kingdom I earn my place in is the kingdom of darkness. My sins, your sins, they are piled as high as heaven. You are, we are chief sinners. We deserve alienation and condemnation from our creator. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. He sought us. He came after us. He condescended to come get us. He died and he rose to transfer us into his kingdom. And that, friends, brings him the greatest of joys. See, see we know in this point of Luke's gospel that Jesus has set his face, I've told you multiple times, right, to go to Jerusalem and Why? so that he can endure the cross and purchase sinners like you and me to come into his kingdom, and that brings him deep joy. For the joy set before him, says the author of Hebrews, he endured a cross, even taking on the misery. And the shame of the cross was joy for him because it meant he got to get to you. Does that not astound you? Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this. He said, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. I think of an illustration Dane Ortland gave. He says, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He's had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem. And the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy. He has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. Christ went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Goodwin went so far as to say that Jesus gets more joy than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. Friend, is this not cause for rejoicing? If these thoughts, if these truths don't do something to your heart, there's something wrong. Something's amiss. You know, I asked you at the start, what made you rejoice recently? And I wonder what sorts of things you thought of. I bet nothing you thought of was bad, right? I bet, I bet you thought of some good things. I bet you thought of some things worthy of rejoicing in. You, you, you rejoice when you get something you longed for. You rejoice when you get relief. You rejoice when your kids accomplish something big or small. You rejoice with your friends when they have cause to rejoice. You rejoice when your sports ball team wins a sports ball game, etc., etc., right? And again, all those things we should rejoice in. But let me ask you this, and you know what I'm going to ask. How does your rejoicing at those things compare to how you rejoice now over the fact that Jesus has rescued you and that he rejoices at your rescue? How does it compare to the thought that your name is written in heaven and can't be blotted out? Do you rejoice over that? If so, how does that look compared to how you look when you rejoice over things that won't matter in a year, let alone 10,000? 
When you think of this, do you lose your inhibition and clap your hands and shout and dance and sing that God moved heaven and earth to get to you and died to bear your burden so that you could be in the kingdom now and forever? Again, we should rejoice at all these things in life, but like Lewis said, all of our joys are pointing to the ultimate one, that we're found in Christ and have a relationship with the creator that we were once alienated from. All other rejoicing should pale in comparison to the rejoicing over the same thing that Jesus rejoices over, that we have been loved and brought into the only king that will last into eternity. If you aren't moved by the truths of the gospel, the truths that make the king of the universe rejoice, can I suggest why that is? Can it be that you're not astounded by grace? Can it be that you rather presume grace rather than being amazed by it? You see, Jesus rejoices in verse 21 that the truths of the kingdom have been hidden from those who think they deserve the kingdom. The wise, the understanding, those at the tippy top of society, those who are learned and important, those who believe themselves moral and enlightened. He rejoices that those who are like little children, the bottom, the inadequate, the humble, the needy, those who have nothing to commend themselves to God, those who are in desperate need of grace and know it, have the truths of the gospel shown to them. He rejoices in those whose very unworthiness allows them to receive the revelation about Christ with freedom and joy. God's pleasure reaches down to those who seem to have nothing to offer but their need. Yet he gives them everything in terms of spiritual blessing, and that makes Jesus rejoice. See, those who don't think they need the gospel won't receive it. In fact, they won't even hear it, not truly. Those who think, I'm not that bad or at least not as bad as this person I know. Those are the ones who don't receive grace because they don't think they need it. Those who think they, that they know God, but it's due in part to their goodness or riches or morality or standing or reputation, those are the ones who don't truly see and receive the gospel. So if you don't remember that you are as in desperate need of outside rescue and lavish grace from God as Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, like we saw in previous passages, you won't rejoice in the gospel. Because you've presumed grace. You've acted as though God should save you. And such a pastor won't see a need for grace at all. Let's illustrate it like this. I remember R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, telling of a time when he was a professor, and he gave his students an assignment with a due date, as professors are wont to do, right? When the due date came, some turned their papers in, but in the class of 225, 25 didn't have their paper and said they, they didn't have enough time. So they, they got busy, and they begged him uh, for mercy. So Sproul said, uh, all right, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. And they thanked him profusely, and they promised to have their next assignments in on time. Then October came, and guess what? This time, 50 students. First it was 25, now it's 50 students. Didn't have their paper, they begged for mercy once more. Sproul granted it, said, okay, but this time is the last time. If you are late for the next paper, it will be an F, no excuses, no whining, F. Okay, is it clear, right? They said yes, they thanked him. The next paper came due, and guess what? 100 students strolled in a lecture hall, utterly unconcerned with no paper. They said, don't worry, prof, we're working on them. We'll have them in a couple days, no sweat. So you know what Sproul did? He picked up a little black grade book, he began calling off names, asking if they had their paper. If they said no, he said, F. And they cried out, that's not fair. Sproul said, I see, it's justice you want. 
then I'll change all of your past late papers to F's as well. He said, the students had quickly taken my mercy for granted. They assumed it. When justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock, and they were outraged. He continues, the normal activity of God involves far more mercy than I showed those students with their term papers. We have come to expect God to be merciful. From there, the next step is easy. We demand it. When it is not forthcoming, our first response is anger against God, coupled with protest. This isn't fair. We soon forget that with our first sin, we have forfeited all rights to the gift of life. That I am drawing breath this morning is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. We have to always remember this. Not, not sort of an exercise of navel-gazing self-flagellation, but in a constant reminder that we are owed nothing but wrath from God, and he gives us nothing but grace and mercy because of Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. What love! What mercy! What a glorious truth to know that a wretch like me could be known and loved by so great a God and King. You know, the last words of Martin Luther before he died was, we are beggars, this is true. And that is what we remember if we are to rejoice as we should in our place in the kingdom. We don't rejoice as people who have earned our place, but as people who have owed an enormous debt. And someone came and paid it off and then added to our account riches too high to count. Those riches being Christ himself because he is the prize of prizes. So we rejoice because we have him and he rejoices, don't you see, because he has us. Because look at verse 22. If you underline or you highlight or you box or star or whatever in your Bible or journal, this is a verse, verse 22, that you want to do it to. This is one of the strongest Christological statements in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because in it is revealed that both the Father's total authority and revelation reside in Jesus, and that Jesus enjoys a unique relationship with the Father. It reveals further, verse 22, that Jesus' rule is absolute. It reveals that if one is to know God, they must go through who? Jesus, if, if one wants to know God, they, if they want to know what God is like, they're to look at Jesus. It reveals that if you know God, it's because Jesus has taken you into relationship and adoption. It reveals that there is no other name under heaven by which men can re- be saved. It reveals that Jesus is no mere prophet, no mere teacher, no mere good example, but that he is, as the old creed said, very God of very God. Uncreated, preexistent, creator of all things, equal with the Father and Spirit. Now listen, he's the one who took on the cross for you. He's the one who walked out of the grave for you. He's the one who rejoices at your name being written in heaven. Do you rejoice over this too? You realize the privileged position you are in, my friend. You realize verse 24, that prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it. They wanted to hear, but they didn't hear it. Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, on and on we go, all long to see the day of Christ coming and conquering and kingdom bringing, and you get to enjoy what they only dreamed of. See, I understand, I do, that we have heard the gospel many times. Have you heard the gospel many times? I get that we come week in and week out, and we hear it, and we sing it, and we know it. I get that repetition can create lethargy. Let us not make the mistake of yawning at this gospel. That we are in the kingdom of God is the miracle of all miracles. 
Now we get to have Jesus as our prize, as glorious beyond comprehension. It'll take eternity to enjoy. But friend, you get him now. You get to have him now and be in the kingdom now. Would you grow tired of this gospel? I beg, I beg you today, search your heart, examine your rejoicing, examine your joys and compare them to your joy in the gospel and your joy in Christ. If you've grown cold toward the gospel, why? Is it possible that you have little by little allowed other things in your life to edge out Christ as your first and greatest prize? Is it possible that the busyness of life, the pursuit of joys in this world have taken your heart from quickening at the name of Jesus, the one who should be your chief joy? Is it possible that you have presumed upon grace, presumed upon your own supposed goodness and morality, and have forgotten how utterly unworthy you are, yet simultaneously how loved you are to be included into the kingdom of this beautiful Christ. Make no mistake, what you rejoice in reveals what you prize the most. If one of those descriptors I just gave fits you, would you pray now? Pray in this moment, for the Spirit of God to quicken your heart once more? Would you ask God to once more reveal the beauties of Christ and the riches found in Him and Him alone?